You are listening to Sermon Audio from First Baptist Church in Louise, Texas. Thank you for listening. Chapter 5. And as you're doing that, I guess you can sit down if you want to. You don't have to. Um, if you've not been with us before, you've not been, uh, or this is your first time with us, um, I want you to know that we, what I tend to do is I tend to walk through books of the Bible. And we've been going through the book of John since the beginning of the year. And so we are going to finish out the fifth chapter in the Gospel of John. Now, if you know me, you know that I, I like to read. I'm a, I'm a reader. I love to read. And one of my favorite genres of books to read are biographies. I love reading biographies. I love to learn about people. I love to know people's stories. You know, I enjoy reading about their struggles and their victories. That's what I really like. Now, if I read a biography of somebody, and then I finally get to meet that person in person, and what I read of them does not line up with how I view them, right? That may be a problem. Maybe I try to convince them that who they said on the page they were is not who they are in real life, right? Or maybe I didn't believe that they were who they were because they didn't meet my own personal expectations. And maybe because, as my family can attest to, I'm a little hard heart, head heart, hard headed, right? I've got a little bit of a hard head. So don't, don't shake your head too hard, mom. Um, I would argue with them. I would argue with them about who they are, right? But regardless, I wouldn't believe who they are, right? They may then bring forth some evidence that this is who I am. What you read about me, what you understood about what you read about me was wrong. Who I am is who I am, right? Now, if they do that, if they bring forth evidence and they talk to me and they try to convince me of who they are and I don't agree with them, who's wrong? Am I wrong or are they wrong? Is my expectation wrong or are they wrong? Well, obviously I would be wrong, right? I would be blinded by the truth of who they are. Well, that's similar as what's going to happen in our text this morning. Now, to be sure, the Bible is not a biography, right? But it does reveal the character and the nature of God. It reveals his plan to redeem people. It, it points to and reveals the Savior that is to come. But Jesus doesn't meet the expectations of the Jewish leaders, right? So Jesus, for their own sake, is going to offer them proof about who he is, about who he claims to be. So Jesus is going to treat this encounter with the Jewish people as a, like a courtroom setting. What he's going to do is he's going to provide four witnesses, four testimonies from people outside of himself that will show them who he is. Then what he's going to do is he's going to change everything. He's going to reverse the trial, and he's going to put them on trial and point out how they are the ones who are wrong. But before we get into the text this morning, let's go ahead and go to the Lord with a word of prayer. Father God, thank you so much for the opportunity to worship you. Lord, to worship you through um, the celebration of baptisms of those two young men, Lord, of both Levi and Lucas, Lord, that they have placed their trust in you. And Father, as we look at the scripture before us today, I pray that you would be honored, that you would be glorified, that you would illuminate the scriptures and open our eyes and open our minds and our hearts to what it is you have to say to us. Lord, that when we ask the question, why Jesus, Jesus gives us evidence of who he is, not because he had to, but because he wants us to understand. And we're grateful for that. We're grateful for who you are. We're grateful for what you've done. We pray, Lord, that you would meet us in this place this morning. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So John chapter 5, verses 31 and 32, this is what it says. Jesus says, I testify about myself. 
If I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who testifies about me, and I know that that testimony he gives about me is true. Now, this can be a little bit confusing, all right? Verse 31 can be a little confusing if we don't really know what's going on. So in verse 31, when Jesus says, if I testify about myself, my testimony is not true, Jesus is giving his testimony. Now, is that a true statement? If Jesus says he is somebody, does that mean that his testimony is true? Right? If he testifies about himself and his testimony is not true, is that true? No, it's not true. So what's happening here? What's going on here? Jesus, you're speaking in riddles. We need you to open up and tell us what you're saying here. Jesus is appealing to the scripture and the tradition of these Jewish leaders he is before. Right? In Deuteronomy 9.15, the scripture tells us that in order for a statement to be true, there needs to be at least two to three witnesses. And so Jesus says that no matter how much I tell you about who I am, you're not going to believe my testimony. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to show you a testimony. So Jesus is going to provide them with all the evidence they need to know who he is, right? that they need to understand the truth. But what they're going to learn, and what we're going to learn through the rest of the book of John, is that it doesn't matter how much evidence they have, they still are not going to believe. They still don't recognize Jesus as Lord. They still don't see him as God. I was listening to this guy talk this week. He's an apologist. Now, if you don't know, an apologist is a guy who, who gives a defense for the faith. And he goes to college campuses and, and does debates around the world. And, and he was talking about people who don't believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, whether they believe in a different um, religion or they're atheist. And he, these apologists, this one specifically, is pretty smart. And he's pretty good at debate. And they know all the reasons that you should believe in Christianity. They know all the reasons that you should. But this man was talking about how when he goes and he's talking with somebody who doesn't believe, when he's having a conversation with somebody who doesn't believe, he asks them a question. He asks them a simple question. He says that if I can prove to you beyond a shadow of a doubt, 100% prove to you that Christianity is true, would you believe? And this is a gauge of the heart. Because if they say no, which they oftentimes do, it shows us that it's not about the evidence that they need. It's a heart issue. Right? It's a heart issue. It's an issue that they don't want to believe, that they don't want to trust, that they, don't, they have, have it said in their heart that Jesus is wrong and there's nothing that will convince them otherwise. Jesus said it this way in John 3.19. He says, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1 that people suppress the truth of the message of the gospel because they don't want the truth. So it's not an issue of evidence, it's an issue of the heart. So when you run up against somebody who is running in opposition about you trying to tell them about who Jesus is, don't be discouraged. Be praying for them. Be patient with them. Have conversations with them. Ask good questions to help them see the truth. And be okay knowing that not even Jesus himself can convince some people to believe in him. And if Jesus can't convince somebody to believe in him, you don't have the power to do that either, right? People ignore the truth all the time. And that's as true today as it is in Jesus' day. Yet Jesus tells him that he knows, in, the, in verse 32, that there is someone who, who tells of his testimony and that that testimony is true. And there's a debate about who Jesus is talking about in this situation, but I believe that he's talking about the Father. Because up until this point, for most of chapter 5, he's been talking about his conversation with the Father, who he is in unity with the Father. 
seeing that that's who he spent the majority of the time talking about before, that's probably who he's talking about here. But he doesn't spend too much time talking about the Father yet. He's going to return to that shortly. So he brings forth the first witness. The first witness. If, if Jesus' testimony can't be trusted by these men, he's going to bring forth, first, or bring forth the first witness. And that witness happens to be John the Baptist. And in verse 33 of chapter 5, we read this. You sent messengers to John, and he testified to the truth. I don't receive human testimony, but I say these things so that you may be saved. John was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. So the first witness is John the Baptist. Now John the Baptist, his witness plays a huge role in especially the opening chapter of John's gospel. Right? We read in verses, uh, or chapter 1, verses 6 through 8, we read this. There was a man sent by God whose name was John, and he came as a witness to testify about the light, so that all might believe through him, but he was not the light. He came to testify about the light. And then in verse 23 of chapter 1, it says this. He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, just as the prophet Isaiah said. And in chapter 1, verse 29 and 30, he says, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, this is the one I told you about. The one who comes after me ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. And then in the same chapter, chapter 1, verse 36, he says this. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. Jesus, or John the Baptist testifies about Jesus a lot in the first chapter of John. So John is a herald for Jesus. So naturally, Jesus is going to appeal to him to help satisfy the curiosity of the Jewish leaders. John the Baptist made a splash amongst the Jewish people. So the leaders knew him, and they knew his message. They didn't necessarily know what to do with him, but they knew that he talked about the one who was coming after him, the one who was greater than him. They even sent some people to inquire of John. John, who are you talking about? Who is this guy? that you're talking about. They were trying to figure out what John was all about. And John testified the truth. Here Jesus reminds them and us that he doesn't need human testimony. He doesn't need human testimony to confirm the truthfulness of his statement. He doesn't need humans to tell him who he is. He doesn't need us to prove that he is God. So why did he use John's testimony? What does he say? He says, so that you may be saved. So if you're not going to believe my testimony, listen to John's testimony. And again, Jesus wants people to be saved. He wants people to believe, and he chooses to use us to help accomplish that mission. He used John as a witness to his claims so that they would be saved. He wanted to provide some evidence for his claim that he was sent from God so that they may be saved. I don't know about you, but have you ever sat back and just thought about the fact that God desires people to be saved? That God desires to know people. That he came to save. That Jesus came to save. He came to take the condemned and make them not condemned. He came to take the dead and make them alive. He came to restore people into a right relationship with God because we are broken and sinful. And here he's appealing to the Jewish leaders and he's saying, I'm telling you these things so that you may believe. I don't need John's testimony to confirm, but I'm telling you so that you may believe. He used it to spur them on to belief. God, when he talks to us, he condescends to us. He comes to us and he talks to us in a way that we can understand it. He helps us to understand his gospel and his mission. 
It's a beautiful thing to think that the infinite God of the universe would come to communicate with us, that he would come and talk to us in a way that we can understand for the purpose of us being saved, for the purpose of us coming to trust in him. And for these Jewish leaders, they liked John the Baptist. They liked John the Baptist. They listened to John, but John was not the good news. John spoke about the good news. He was not the good news. He was not the Messiah. He was not the one who came to save. He was a burning and a shining light, preparing the way of the Lord. And they were happy to listen to John's message. Why? Because they liked the message that a Messiah was coming. They wanted a Messiah to come. They liked hearing about God, God's promises being fulfilled. They enjoyed the light of John because they longed for the day that the Lord would come. But the Lord came just as John the Baptist promised, and they rejected him. And so if John's witness isn't enough, Jesus is going to make another appeal. If you're not going to listen to John, I want you to listen to something else. What he's going to focus on next is his works, what he's been doing in the world. So in verse 36 of chapter 5, he says this, But I have a greater testimony than that of John's. Because of the works that I do, because of the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, these very works I am doing testify about me that the Father has sent me. So he's talking about the works, the mighty things that Jesus has done. Not the least of which was performed just a few short verses beforehand. right? When he healed a man. When he healed a man who had been lame for 38 years. This is only a work that God could do. That this man went from not walking to walking. That this man went from not having muscles in his legs to having muscles in his legs. From this man not being able to take care of himself to this man being able to take care of himself. And this is only a work that God could do. And this was enough to prove that Jesus was sent to do mighty things, right? That he was sent of God because it was only a work that God could do. Jesus was reversing the problems of the fall. Right? Jesus is healing the brokenness of the world, and this is just a small picture of that reality. This evidence that Jesus was sent by the Father to do the will of the Father, to accomplish the works that the Father had set before him. Jesus' healing of this lame man was partially fulfilled in their own scriptures. They would have known this verse. Isaiah chapter 35, verses 5-6, through six, he says this, The eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. The lame will leap like deer, and the tongues of the mute will sing for joy. For the water will gush in the wilderness and the streams of desert. The lame will rejoice. The lame will leap like deer. This guy who was lame was now walking. Now here's the thing. The works of Jesus are not an end to themselves. The miracles of Jesus are not an end to themselves. Jesus didn't come just to do miraculous things. The signs are just that, right? They're just signs. They point to something greater than themselves. Every single one of the miracles that Jesus did pointed to the reality of the one he came, or of the works he came to accomplish, that he was going to die and be buried and resurrected. We can't stop at the sign and get to Jesus. We can appreciate the miracle. We can thank God for the miracle, but we can't stop there. We have to acknowledge the God behind the miracle. Jesus did wonderful works in as so much as he testified about who he was. And Jesus' greatest sign would happen just a few short years later. Two and a half, three years later, right? After he was crucified on the cross and he was buried. 
He was in that tomb for three days. The resurrection of Jesus is the most definitive proof that Jesus is who he claims to be. The most miraculous thing that has ever happened. But some of those even witnessed that, and it wasn't enough for them. The resurrection of Jesus, this dead man walking, right, who is now alive, was not enough for them. Why? Because of their hardened heart. Again, it's not about the evidence. It's about the lack of belief. It's because of the state of their heart. And as if John the Baptist and Jesus' works weren't enough, he continues with this third witness, God the Father. And so in verse 37 we see this, The Father who sent me has testified about me. You have not heard his voice at any time, and you have not seen his form. So the Father testifies to Jesus. Now this one and the next witness kind of have a lot of crossover, but what Jesus is getting at, here's the point, that they've missed the point, that they've never heard from God, they've never seen God. Now that same God is standing in front of them and they reject him. And they want nothing to do with him. God has revealed himself in the person and the work of Jesus, but just like they rejected Moses and just like they rejected the prophets and just like they rejected those who came to provide for them, they reject him. The Father had told them that the Messiah was coming. He had prepared them with John the Baptist, but they were still hard-hearted. They still did not believe. And we will see that time and time again, again, it's not an issue of the evidence put before them. It's a heart issue. They don't want to believe. Now Jesus isn't done providing evidence for who he is. In addition to the evidence, he's going to start reversing the accusation. He's going to start turning the tables. If He's going to put the Jewish leaders on trial. He's going to point out their blindness. He's going to challenge the way they think. So starting in verse 38, it says this, You don't have his, that meaning God's, word residing in you, because you do not believe in the one he sent. You pour over the scriptures because you think you have eternal life in them, and yet they testify about me. So Jesus is going to use the scriptures as proof of who he is. He's getting down to the nitty-gritty now when it comes to their issue. These men don't have the word of God in their heart. They may know it in their mind, but they don't have it in their heart. They don't believe it. He's accusing them of reading and knowing the scriptures, but not knowing the one who gave the scriptures. They don't believe Jesus is who he says he is because they are not transformed by the word of God. I love in verse 39 when he says this, you pour over the scriptures because you think you have eternal life in them, and yet they testify about me. They thought that they found eternal life in the scriptures. They, but eternal life isn't found in the scriptures, it's found in a person that the scriptures tell us about. The person revealed in the scriptures, Jesus. The entirety of the biblical story points to Jesus. It testifies about him. He is the reason and the point of all of Scripture. Does that mean we go looking under every rock in the Bible to see if there's Jesus there? No, rather we take into account all that God has done and how he has revealed himself in his word and know that the purpose and the structure of all of history was to get us to Jesus. Meaning that even the Old Testament is important for Christian believers. I've said it a lot of times and I'm going to say it forever. As followers of Jesus, we cannot divorce ourselves from the Old Testament. We cannot unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. The Old Testament is 
as important to us as it was to these Jewish leaders. In it, we see the goodness of, and the glory of God working out his, miss, his mission and telling us his message. After Jesus' resurrection, in Luke chapter 24, he's walking down this road. There's this road to Emmaus moment. He runs into a couple of his disciples, and they don't recognize who he is, and then he reveals to them who he is. And what he does in Luke chapter 24, verse 44, he says this. He told them, that's Jesus speaking, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. The Old Testament is about getting us to Jesus. And in the Gospel of John, Philip, in, in the first chapter, runs to Nathanael, right? And in verse 45 of John 1, he says this, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, in the prophets, Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. And even Nathanael, he kind of goes, you know, does anything good come out of Nazareth, right? That's what he says. But he's saying that we found him. The one who has been promised to us has come. We need the Old Testament to understand Jesus. We need the Old Testament to understand Jesus. Think about it this way. If all we had was the Old Testament, we could still get to Jesus. We could still get to the Savior. We could still understand his message. We could still worship him. But God has been gracious to us in that he's given us the fullness of the Old Testament as well, or the New Testament. Every person recorded in the New Testament, with the exception of Luke, was Jewish. Meaning that they relied on the Jewish scriptures to tell, talk about Jesus. They, they wrote a letter, or they preached a sermon, or they discipled a new Christian. They were using the Old Testament as the backdrop of teaching. And did you know that your Bible is 77% of the Old Testament? 77% of your Bible is the Old Testament. And too often we leave that 77% behind. We leave it on the table. I don't need that. I just need this 23% over here. That's a story about God's graciousness about God's revelation. Now, I don't want you to hear me say that we need to abandon the New Testament. I'm not saying that. I'm saying we need to balance the, the God, God's Word with the approach of reading the Old Testament, reading the New Testament, and studying them both. Because we can miss the point. We don't see the fullness of who God is and what God has done if we leave out 77% of our Bible. Here we had people who knew the Bible, and they still rejected Jesus. And Jesus is interesting because he's very blunt, Right? He's saying, you study and study and study the Word of God, but you miss the point, Jesus. We need to read and study all of God's Word, not to acquire more knowledge about Him, which is what they were seeking. They were seeking knowledge, right? But to love Him more deeply. We study not to get more knowledge, but to love more deeply. Now, will we gain knowledge as we study? Absolutely. But we also gain a love for God. Because get this, studying God's word is not going to save you. Only Jesus can save you. There are atheist scholars whose lives are devoted to studying God's word that won't be saved. The study of the scripture should make us love Jesus more, and if it doesn't, something is wrong. These Jewish leaders were reading God's word, but they, weren't reading, they were reading it with some blinders on. They were reading it with their own interpretation. They were reading it and studying it to affirm their own understanding and not truly seeing what God was doing. And we have to be very careful that we don't do the same thing. So the question is, why do you study? Or why do you read the Bible? 
Did you know there are more wrong ways to read and study the Bible than there are right ways? Think about that for just a second. There's more ways to read and study the Bible wrongly than there is to do it rightly. So let's talk about it. I want to take a moment and I want to go over a few ways that people tend to read the Bible that runs contrary, or at least isn't a fullness of a picture of what God has the Scriptures for us for. So the first thing is, we read it as a moral guidebook. That the Bible is a list of do this and don't do that. Right? That these are the rules to follow to make up a good moral life. These are how you can be a better person. We look at the characters in the Bible, right? And we figure that if we emulate them as some pinnacles of morality, we will be doing good. But here's, where, here's what's ridiculous. If we just look at these characters in the Bible, with the exception of Jesus, they all fail mightily, right? They all fall short. One of the problems with reading the Bible this way is that we start to think that if I do this and if I don't do that, or if I don't do this and I do do that, then I am right with God it misses the reality that we are not right with God because of what we do, but we can be right with God because of what Jesus did. There is nothing that I can do to earn God's love or his grace. But that was accomplished at the cross of Jesus and in his resurrection. Not only that, but if we look at the Bible as a moral guidebook and we think that we're obeying these rules well, it can cause us to be arrogant and self-righteous. Now, I'm not saying that we can't find morality in the Bible. God has laid out the perfect morality. The Ten Commandments are an example of the perfect morality. But if we only view the Bible as a moral guidebook, we miss the point of the Scriptures. And we start building barriers between ourselves and others. If we are quote-unquote morally upright, we can become self-righteous and see ourselves as superior to those who don't line up with our version of morality. Using the Bible as a moral guidebook is dangerous and can cause more issues in our relationship with others and with God than it can help us. Another way that people use the Scriptures wrongly, read the Scriptures wrongly, is that they read it about how to live a better life. And you've probably heard this phrase before, and I may step on some toes, but I've heard this. The Bible is basic instructions before leaving earth. And that sounds nice, right? But the Bible is not an instruction book. The Bible is a revelation of who God is, the goodness of who God is. That the Bible is the revelation of a good and holy and righteous God. Does it provide wisdom on how we can live a godly godly life? Absolutely. Looking at the Proverbs and Jesus' teaching and the Apostles' writing, we can learn how to live a godly life. But to boil it down to simply, you can live your best life now, is not taking the Word of God seriously. What's the danger in that? Well, what if life doesn't get better? as you read your Bible, and do the things that are in it. Jesus never promised us an easy life. He never said that this world, you follow me, and everything will be smooth sailing. The only promise he made was that if we follow him, we are going to have persecution. Right? We do get a better life in one aspect, where if we're following Jesus, we have hope. We have a new hope that's been given inside of us. We have a blessed assurance that Jesus is mine. We have a relationship with a God that saves us, sustains us, and comforts us. Do all our worries, do all our troubles, do all our trials go away? No. But we don't have to carry the burden alone. God gives us one another to help bear that burden. God gives us his Holy Spirit to help us bear the burden. God gives us him to help bear the burden. 
Reading the Bible this way shortchanges God's work in history. It shortchanges God's glory. And it views God not as the king of the universe, but as a magician or a genie that gives you whatever you want. It diminishes who God is and elevates who you think you are. And it's a dangerous recipe. It's a recipe for disaster. The other thing we do is we can insert ourselves into the scripture. And this is a big thing for prosperity preachers. Many of the preachers that you see on TV and, or that have big platforms, they, they, people like them because they make, them, they make me the point of the story. Right? And one of my favorite examples is David and Goliath's story. Right? That we have David and Goliath, who con- David conquers Goliath, something that looked impossible to conquer. And that Goliath in your life is your bills or your health or your, your annoying coworker, whatever it may be. And all you have to do is conquer that. You are David. You can conquer that Goliath. That's not the point of that story. That's not what that story is about. God's not telling us that we can conquer our David. He's saying that he's going to provide us with a David to conquer that Goliath. And that David that conquers Goliath, this Goliath of sin and the Goliath of death, is Jesus Christ. So we shouldn't place ourselves in the Scriptures. The Bible is not about us. The Bible is for us. God reveals himself to us so that we can have a relationship with him. The point of the Scriptures is Jesus So how should we read and study the Scriptures? Well, we should read and study the Scriptures for what they are. They are the divine inspired word of God that points us to salvation in Jesus Christ. The Bible, again, is not about us. It is for us. It tells us of a God who is bigger and stronger than all of our problems, but doesn't always make our problems go away. It tells us about a God, though, who wants to save humanity, that wants to conquer sin and death, and does that through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The point of the Bible is to reveal to us who God is and what he has done. The scriptures testify about him. And anything short of that, any way of reading the scriptures short of that, devalues the word of God. That's the problem with these leaders that Jesus is talking to. They were were studying the scriptures, but they didn't understand God's plan. And they didn't understand God's purpose in the scriptures. So he stands in front of them, and they can't see the God of the universe standing in front of them. They don't believe. And this is the final accusation of Jesus in verse 40 through 47. He says this, But you are not willing to come to me so that you may have life. I do not accept glory from people, but I know you, that you have no love for God within you. I've come in my Father's name, and yet you do not accept me. If someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him. How can you believe since you accept glory from another but not do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, because he wrote about me. But if you don't believe what he wrote, how will you believe my words? So he gets down to the core. The core issue is unbelief. That's his chief charge against them, that they don't truly believe. They don't believe because they don't actually love God. They love what God can do. They don't love the God who is. They are so consumed with their religious observances that they miss the intention and the message of God toward them. They wanted a Messiah. They wanted a Savior. But they wanted one that looked different than Jesus. They had their own ideas of how they were going to be saved. 
what they wanted God to do. And so when God did what he wanted to do, how he wanted to do it, they were filled with unbelief. When Jesus talks about not receiving glory from people in verse 41, what does he mean? He means that we as humans cannot take away or add to who he is. He doesn't need us to glorify him. He doesn't need our worship. He doesn't need our praise. He doesn't need our approval. He doesn't need anything from us. He doesn't lack anything. All the approval he needs comes from the fact that he is the creator of the universe, that he holds life and death in his hands, that he sustains the world, and with one word he can change everything. There is nothing that we can add to who he is. But he graciously chooses to invite us into a relationship with him where we can glorify him, where we can worship him, where we can praise him, that we can know him and love him and rest in him. And here, he wants the Jewish leaders to know that the only way to have life is to come to him. They can't find life in the scriptures. They can only find it in the Son. And he has come to accomplish the task of his Father's name, in his Father's name. And he is rejected because they don't love God. But the crazy thing is, they would have gladly accepted anybody else who would have come. If they came in their own name, if a man claimed to be the Messiah they, and led a revolt, they would have followed him. They would have trusted a simple man. They would have accepted another. But they deny the Savior. Their sin and their arrogance and their hatred of Jesus blind them to the glory that is revealed to them. And this is an example of what John said earlier in his gospel in verses 10 and 11 of chapter 1. He was in the world, and the world was created through him, and yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. The Jewish people wanted a Savior, but they wanted a Savior made in their own image. They wanted a Savior that they could control, a Savior that they could manipulate. They didn't want the Savior that actually came. And how often... Are we the same way? We don't want to worship God for who he is. We don't want to see Jesus for who he is. Rather, we want a Savior made in our own image. Because if he is made in our image, then maybe we can have some control. Maybe we can manipulate him. If you want God, you have to take him as he is, not as you want him to be. And that's hard. Because what happens is when we come to God, he reveals all our weaknesses. He reveals all of our brokenness. He reveals all of your shortcomings. He points out where you fail. But the good news is, he will forgive you. and He will wash you clean in your brokenness, in your rebellion. He will restore you. and He will make you new. Truth is, not everybody wants that. Not everybody wants that. There will be a day when we all have to stand before God and we will be held accountable for what we did with Jesus. For those that love him, eternal life. For those that reject him, eternal death. That's the impact of Jesus' words to these Jewish leaders. That they say they love God, but they don't really. They say they're going to face a day of judgment. And then Jesus deals a final death blow to their state. Listen again to what he says in verse 45 and 46 and 47. Do not think that I will accuse you 
to the Father, I don't need to accuse you. Your accuser is Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would have believed me, because he wrote about me. But if you do not believe what he wrote, how will you believe my words? Moses is believed to be the the author of the first five books of the Old Testament. And the Jewish leaders would have loved studying Moses. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They would have loved studying, studying the Torah. They would esteem God because, or Moses because Moses had his revelation of God. Right? God revealed himself to Moses. He revealed the law to Moses. And Moses was responsible for helping the Israelites flee from Egypt. Moses stood between God and the Israelites when the Israelites had sinned against God. And they believed that Moses could continue to pray for them that he was going to continue to make intercession and speak on their behalf. And Jesus says that it isn't Moses that's going to speak and plead to God for you. He's not going to speak on your behalf anymore, but he is going to be the one that accuses you before the Father. The one that you had put your hope in is going to accuse you because you don't know where your true hope is. Your true hope is in me, Jesus. They're not trusting the evidence before them. Because if they truly believed what Moses wrote in the Old Testament, they would believe Jesus. If they truly trusted Moses, they would trust Jesus. If they truly understood what Moses wrote, they would trust Jesus. But unfortunately, they're blinded by their own hatred and their prejudice against Jesus. They can't see that he is the one that Moses longed for, that he is the one that Moses predicted, that Moses believed that this guy is the one who would redeem God's people. These leaders are guilty of not believing in Jesus. They stand condemned because they don't believe the evidence that Jesus laid in front of them. So my question to you is, do you believe what Jesus says about himself? What is it that you believe about Jesus? Does it line up with what Jesus said about himself? Do you see him as Lord of all? Because that's who he is. The evidence is before you. John the Baptist believes. The works of Jesus prove who he is. The Father promised his coming. And the scripture testify about his coming. And the resurrection proved that it was all true. And that's what we need to hold on to. That Jesus is who he says he is. And he proved it. But if you don't believe in Jesus, he's calling out to you today. He wants you to trust him. He wants you to worship him. He wants you to believe in him and find life in his name. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for today. Thank you for the opportunity to preach your word, Lord. And as we enter into this time of of worship, of singing a couple more songs, Lord, I pray that you would be magnified and glorified. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his life his death, his burial, and resurrection, and the fact that he comes to save sinners of who I am the chiefest, Lord. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Go ahead and stand up. Thanks for listening. To find out more information about our church and ministries, visit fbclouise.com.